When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. It seems like just yesterday that we were tooling down the Kennedy Expressway in Chicago in an RV with Bernie Sanders for the first Axe Files episode back in 2015. Well, this is episode number 300. And for those of you who have traveled every one of those miles with us or joined along the way on the Axe Files, I really thank you for for listening. Now, this is also the week in which we marked the 87th anniversary of the birth of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so it seemed altogether fitting to spend some time with Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. In that role, she follows a parade of distinguished American civil rights leaders, starting with Thurgood Marshall, the future Supreme Court justice who formed the Legal Defense Fund in 1940. Sherilyn has her own extraordinary story as the daughter of immigrants who has become one of the most powerful and impactful voices against discrimination uh, in this country, as you will hear uh, in this conversation. We spoke about her journey, about her powerful book written in 2007 on the courthouse lawn, about the history of lynching in this country. And we talked about the current challenges posed by a president and an administration that has taken a decidedly different tact on the issue of civil rights. Sherilyn Eiffel, so, so good to see you here uh, on the campus of the University of Chicago Mm -hmm. during King Week. Yes. You spoke uh, last night um, with uh, Reverend Barber. Mm about the legacy of King and where we are mm-hmm. today. And I want to talk to you about all of that. But I, I just want to ask you a little bit about your own journey. Sure. Because immigration is one of the the, the issues of the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you come from mm-hmm. a family of, of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me about that. Well, it's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in how we talk about, you know, what makes an American and, and who Americans are. Last year was the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment um, to the Constitution, you know, one of the three amendments passed after the Civil War. And I think people forget that the 14th Amendment contains, you know, so many of the provisions that I think um, we we almost uh, accept as air. One of them is birthright citizenship, right? The idea that if you were born in this country, um, you are a citizen of this country. And that provision literally shaped the landscape, the, the vision of this country, um, for for the following sen- the subsequent century, uh, and so families across the country, including my own, um, are families that were shaped by the immigrant story. Um, most white families in this country were shaped by the immigrant story. I'm a son of, a, of, a, of an immigrant yeah. myself. But tell me about your yeah. family. So so um, for our family, you know, our family comes uh, really from two strains. From the Caribbean, from from Barbados, uh, which is where my grandparents are from, but also from Panama, um, because my grandparents traveled like many um, black people who lived in uh, Jamaica and Barbados and other islands did to Panama to work on the Panama Canal or to work on the jobs that were created by this extraordinary um, infrastructure project. And as a result of my grandparents being in Panama, Um, we have a kind of unique perspective on America because Panama at that time was in many ways a kind of wholly owned subsidiary of the United States. And and so in Panama, there was segregation in the canal zone uh, that was controlled by the United States. Um, my grandmother was a domestic who worked for white families in the in the canal zone. So much of what people think about in terms of the American South was also kind of the understanding of American segregation um, very uniquely in the country of Panama. And um, and so it, it really helped me understand the ways in which um, we make assumptions about the immigration story and about the ways in which the immigration story is somehow very separate from America. But in our case, it really wasn't. 
And then for, you know, my parents and for our family, um, you know, we, we grew up in New York. And what brought, but they, they came to New York for, for opportunities? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and my father started out as an electrician and then became a social worker in Harlem. And we grew up in Queens. My mom passed away when I was very young. And um, uh, almost six. Oh, my. Yeah. Really the, the defining moment of my young life. Yeah, and, how, how does a six-year-old process that? Well, you know, I have a big family, so I have nine siblings. And part of the processing is that, is that, you know, you're surrounded by your family and you're watching how they process. Where, where did you fall in that? I'm the youngest. Ah. Mm-hmm. I'm the youngest. Uh, but So there were people to look after you. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, I, I say all the time that... Um, you know, I, I always want to make my family proud, and particularly my, my siblings, who um, who I think, like many siblings in big families, are kind of a part of making you what you are. Um, and I talk about this a lot because I think we've lost some of this in America by having lost our kind of value of public goods and public life. Um, you know, my, my older siblings, you know, contributed to me being who I am. Um, you know, my, my sister and brother went to City College and mm-hmm. in New York, and, you know, I remember that the registration fee was $85 a semester, and very often we didn't have it, um, and they were late registering, but they were able to get through college. My oldest brother, um, you know, was able to join the local electrical union because of the work of breaking down discrimination in those unions, and it was my brother who was able to sign Which the... Which were notoriously Notoriously, and mm-hmm. so that work allowed him to, um, you know, work in the union, to purchase his own home. And it was he, my brother, who signed the promissory note for my student loans when I went to Vassar College. So there's a way in which your whole family is involved in supporting you. We should point out, if your name is familiar to people, it's because your cousin Mm -hmm. was Gwen Eiffel, Mm -hmm. who had, uh, who really touched the country uh, as an anchor of the PBS NewsHour, and I knew her mm. as a print journalist, mm. a very fine political uh, reporter. Um, you you were exposed to politics uh, <laughs> at a very early age, and you you speak about the heroes, your mm. early political heroes, people who I remember well: Shirley Chisholm and mm. Barbara Jordan. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, we were the kind of family that um, <laughs> thought politics was fun. We, we, we watched the news every night with my, my father, and, um, you know, we watched Firing Line, and we, wa- we watched, um, you know, a lot of the political shows that were led by African Americans, like uh, Gil Noble's Like It Is, uh, every weekend, and we had a, a, a conversation with the television, you know. We watched the news, and my father was talking to the TV, you know. Yeah. There, was a, there was a running critique <laughs> happening, so we never thought you were supposed to just consume the news. We were really engaged with it. And, and, and how much was that, that, that immigrant experience, the, that o- awareness of sort of the, the importance of governance and politics in people's mm. lives? I mean, what... What caused your father to be so deeply uh, passionate well, he was, and interested? He was a news junkie. I mean, I've known many other news junkies. I don't think that's particular yeah, to being to being an guilty. immigrant. Yeah. yeah, and so so you know, I think that was his thing. He enjoyed it, and um, you know, and he was very, uh, you know, I think the the term would be that he was a race man. He was really into the idea of African Americans moving forward and having power and finding themselves. And so we were true students of the civil rights movement. There was no documentary that came on about the civil rights movement that we didn't watch. And, you know, my father would call you downstairs. I'm, I'm I, uh, giving up my age, but, you know, old enough that when I was very young, you'd get called downstairs if black political leaders were on TV. Uh, and so there was a kind of sense in which he wanted to infuse that in us. And so for us, that was just kind of part of our home and mm-hmm. we came to like it. You know, I, I didn't like the Watergate hearings uh, at first, um, you know, but in those days, you only had a few channels and it was on every channel. Yeah. And you couldn't get away from it. It was the summertime, I remember. And, um, you know, big family, um, not at all wealthy, <laughs> struggling. We didn't go to camp. Uh, we stayed home, you know, the summer, yeah. we just hung out. So we hung out and, uh, you know, and it was just boring, but you watched it because it was the only thing that was on. And then I can remember that suddenly it wasn't boring. I mean, I just remember that feeling of suddenly something was happening that was different than what had seemed like a bunch of people droning on and on. 
And part of that was, you know, the shift. I remember when John Dean came to testify and his yeah. wife Maureen came in. So there was a little glamour in the room. And I remember Barbara Jordan. And yeah. uh, it was Congress extraordinary. Congressman from, from Houston Texas. Mm-hmm. and uh, just a larger than life mm-hmm. personality and figure on that committee and in that Congress. Mm-hmm. She had a she had a voice. Um, that's the only way I can describe it. I, I always say that there was a uh, it was maybe the first time I had seen certainly on television you know, a black woman command the room with her voice, not uh, not an entertainer, right? Not command the room because she was singing or, um, I always say, you know, Barbara Jordan was not a decorative woman, you know, I would call her a handsome woman, right? She was, uh, she was an imposing figure, but she controlled that room when she spoke. You couldn't oh, not she was listen. Powerful yeah. And elegant in her. Yes, and very elegant and very, and so for me, um, that opened up a different, a new possibility. You know, to the, the black women I saw on television were extraordinary, but mostly they were entertainers. It was Diane Carroll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there was a period when I was young, and I was blessed to be in that period, when there was Barbara Jordan, when there was Yvonne Brathwaite Burke from mm-hmm. California, I remember, when there was Shirley Chisholm. There, there were who these, ran for president. Who ran for president in 1972 from New York, from Brooklyn, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there were these women who were um, who were serious, who were about business, and who were in politics, and um, and that was exciting and and opened up a lot of possibility. And did you know at that moment that you that you wanted to go to law, that you wanted to be a lawyer? Did did you see what did you see yourself doing uh, <laughs> as a result of that? You know. Um, I've said before that, you know, as I, I was mentioning that, you know, we watched all these civil rights documentaries when I was a kid, and um, I would watch these documentaries, and, you know, there was one that used to come on every year. It was called King from Montgomery to Memphis. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, never got, got tired of watching it, and it ended with, uh, you know, Nina Simone singing Why the King of Love is Dead and that walk uh, with the casket. And so it's super, super powerful for a young kid. And also... Um, you know, 1968, when King was assassinated, it was a year of, that I can remember as a kid being very powerful because I do actually remember, um, I think I remember at least, the feeling and the funeral. And, and I certainly remember the feeling around Bobby Kennedy being killed. And yes. I re- only remember all those things because, at the, you know, the last month of that year was the, year my, was the month my mother died. Uh, so 1968 was, was really heavy for me. And so there was a sense of my connection to this period of time. And so what I thought when I saw these... Uh, films was, I just couldn't believe I had missed this period. It was so yeah. obvious I was supposed to be in the civil rights movement. So I think my first feelings was was that sense of wanting to be part of that. Uh, and then, um, you know, later getting to see these documentaries, I did get to see lawyers. I did get to see Thurgood Marshall. And um, and so, yeah, when Who's I was... chair you now, Phil, at the NAACP? No pressure, no pressure at all. <laughs> he's, uh, he's the founder of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And yeah. Uh, was the first African-American Supreme Court justice. And so I, uh, you know, fairly young, decided I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And and actually, um, you know, it's it's funny, there was a lot of talk about yearbooks, about high school yearbooks uh, during the Kavanaugh hearing. So I pulled up my high school yearbook. And what I said, you know, in my career goal, it says, first black female Supreme Court justice. That's what I said I wanted to be. Um, did that, you go back that, and read your calendars from your yeah. high school years as well? <laughs> um, that is that is not my goal today, but that what you know, but but because because I saw Thurgood Marshall and I thought, well, okay, I could be the you know the female counterpart to Thurgood Marshall. So there so there was a sense that these images and these people and what they were doing, the substance of them, um, really powerfully affected me, and I knew that I wanted to be involved in some kind of you know civil rights or social justice work in some way. And you went to NYU. Uh, law school, mm-hmm. and then uh, worked for the ACLU, and and then you started <laughs> where you are now mm-hmm. at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Tell me about your early experiences mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, so I went to NYU Law School, which was great for me because NYU had uh, really transformed itself in many ways into kind of the premier place for training public interest lawyers. And they had a roster of, uh, you know, scholars on the faculty who were just extraordinary. So there are many people who um, can say that they did not like law school. I loved law school. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed myself and felt, um, you know, that I was I was in the right place. And when I left law school, I, as you said, I went to the ACLU for a year as a fellow and then went to the Legal Defense Fund. So I was a very, very young lawyer. And the Legal Defense Fund, you know, I 
I, I maintained for years afterwards, after I left, it was still the place uh, where I was working with the smartest people I've ever met. Um, a place of tremendous pressure because the work is so important. Um, and the relationship with clients is so important. But I was a very, very young lawyer. And so it was a place of extraordinary stress <laughs> because you just wanted to do well. And one of the extraordinary things was that, you know, you would go to communities uh, in the South where you represented your clients and they would have complete faith in you. So I'm like 26, right? Yeah. But they are, they are just very clear that you know what you're doing and that you're going to be great. And their belief makes you have to know what you're doing. You know, Brian Stevenson was here not mm -hmm. long ago, who I know you know mm -hmm. well. Yes. And he talked about, you know, his early experiences as a death penalty mm -hmm. lawyer and the awesome kind of responsibility of knowing that you're holding people's yeah. lives in your hand and also the the unsettling mm. <laughs> realization <laughs> that you don't really know what you're doing yet. Yeah. And so you kind of it's a sink or swim kind of situation. Yeah. Except other people are are on your no, back as right. you swim. That's right. And you know, I always credit LDF with having the ability to pick people uh, who swim, <laughs> but you, but, I uh, think were, you didn't overlap probably with Deval Patrick. No, no, he was a few years ahead of me, but uh, another example, another example of an extraordinary, you know, young lawyer and, and look where he is now. It's one of the reasons why the roster of alumni at LDF is so, um, so extraordinary because there's just people who go on to do amazing things. And you worked early on there on a on a voting rights case involving judicial mm -hmm. uh, elections. Yeah, all, I, I came to do voting rights work, and that's what I did uh, almost exclusively for five years. And um, you know, very early on, maybe the second week, the director council sent me to Houston to talk with um, African-American voters in Harris County, Texas, who believed that the at-large system of electing judges there denied them the ability to elect their candidates of choice to sit on the bench. And the Harris County was about 20% African-American, 22% Latino. The Houston. Houston yeah. area. And there'd been no African-Americans who were elected. Some had been appointed to fill unexpired terms uh, by the then Democratic governor, Mark White, but they couldn't get elected. So uh, I went down, you know, um, Again, a little, a little, a little young and naive. But I started to really work on this case, and I ended up filing the case. And in three years, the case ended up in the Supreme Court. So it was, you know, a meteoric rise, um, and uh, and it was extra extraordinarily rigorous. We won the case. Um, you know, the court decided that uh, tr elections for trial judges is covered by Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, and that was important. And it's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, that picture that has been become viral in the last few months of the 17 African-American women who were elected in Harris County in yes. November, women judges who were elected, yeah. means so much to me because, um, you know, I started out with, you know, this this um, important issue and the desire of African-American voters in Harris County to be able to elect uh, judicial candidates to office. And so to see, um, you know, decades later, this this roster of African-American women, no less, uh, judges elected in Harris County is super powerful for me. You know, another issue that um, you've grappled with, this, it's almost now a cliche to talk about life-work balance, mm. but you were raising a family <sighs> at the time. Yeah. And, um, and, and ultimately, you made career decisions uh, to try and find mm -hmm. that balance, so you you left uh, you left the legal defense fund. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I um I had a a, a child. Uh, I guess I think I did my first trial when I was pregnant. I certainly remember that uh, the first time I felt my baby kick, I was on a telephone deposition. I was conducting a deposition of an expert witness, um, and I remember also that I weaned my daughter so that I could go do my first appellate argument in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I always tell people I have no regrets about it either. Uh, at that point, we weren't, we weren't so much into pumping. But I was very career-focused and also very much, you know, in love with my daughter and my family. Uh, uh, and after five years, you know, I said, how, do I, how can I do this another way? And, um, but what's important to remember is that there weren't very many models for me of how to do it. I mean, I remember, actually, when I was pregnant... I've talked to the then director counsel, you know, who just a mentor who recently passed away, but one of the great civil rights lawyers literally of our time, and unfortunately not enough people know about him, Julius Chambers. And I, you know, and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, you should, you should talk to some other, you know, woman at LDF who's had kids and litigated. And I said, well, who? You know, <laughs> there weren't, there really, most, most women at LDF uh, did not have small children. 
Um, and the only one I could think of was Constance Baker Motley, who was now on the yeah. federal bench, uh, but who had litigated most of the cases desegregating uh, public universities in the South. And so I actually did call her up. And to you know her credit, she was an extraordinary woman. She said, absolutely, come see me. So we had lunch. And you know, I said, well, what do I do? And she said, well, first of all, you need to live in Nanny. And I said, well, I, you know, I can't afford to live in Nanny. I don't want to live in Nanny. Um, as I recall, my salary at the time was, I think I was making $25,000 a year. Mm. And... Um, and and so you know it was a it was a bit of a struggle, but I didn't have a lot of role models to help me figure out that particular piece. I just want to point out that you undoubtedly could have made multiples of that mm-hmm. had you chosen to do something else. Yeah, you know, the, uh, people have talked with me about that. How did you make the choice? There was no choice. There was no other way for me. That was why I went to law school. That's part of why I enjoyed law school. I knew why I was there. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to law school to be a lawyer. I went to law school to do the work that I ended up doing. And, and so I'm eternally grateful for that. But it actually helped me. I've always said I've never been unhappy in any job I've had in, my, in any aspect of my yeah. career because I've been doing exactly what I wanted to do. So I knew why I was there. Um, and so the money didn't was, was not important. But it was difficult to figure out how to do this balance. Well, let me ask you uh, uh, what may be an intrusive question and a okay, presumptuous... I'll tell you if it is. I'm sure you will. <laughs> presumptuous question, but... Having lost your mom at such an early age, does it impact how you think about being there? Um, yes. So, uh, good question, because, yeah, it's like even if I could have afforded it, I wouldn't have had a live-in nanny. I wanted to be with my children. Um, and and I'm, I'm certain that some of that, you know, mm-hmm. is, uh, is certainly related to having lost my mom and, um, you know, seeing how important that is. And... But I think my kids would say, um, so, I, so I left LDF. Part of it was, I do want to be clear that I didn't leave LDF because I had kids and because I wanted a more mm-hmm. balanced life alone. That was part of it. I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I knew I was going to be working you know, crazy hard no matter what I did. And my kids would probably tell you that I, you know, I worked all the time as an academic, <laughs> which I did. But there was something else. And the something else was that um, I was litigating those cases and... I had a sense that I wasn't saying in the courtroom precisely what my clients were telling me was the reason, for example, that they wanted to elect African-American judges. What was the reason? Um, so, yes, I, I you know, litigated the case. I litigated the case under the Voting Rights Act. We prevailed in the case. But there really wasn't a space to talk about this issue of what it meant to be represented on the bench. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write about it. Uh, and so that was the other impetus was, is there a way that I can say more about what I heard and about, about what the truth is about race and representation and the justice system and the feeling of exclusion and what it means to not see yourself represented and what it means to feel as though the justice system does not reflect your community, your values, and so forth. Uh, and so when I went to teach at University of Maryland Law School, um, I ended up writing for 10 years, really, about what I had heard. I wrote a succession of, of law review articles about this issue of uh, diversity on the bench and mm-hmm. what it really and means and disenfranchisement and what it means for the justice system to not reflect uh, the communities of people who they have so much control over. And, and you ultimately wrote a, a book. You know, mm-hmm. well, I should just say parenthetically, when, when Brian Stevenson was here um, and having read his book, um, you know, he makes a very powerful case that you, you've also made that we have this legacy in this country that we've never really fully come to grips with. Um, other countries have, you know, the, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Germany came to grips with that. But America's treatment of, uh, uh, of you know, enslaved people, as he r- refers to them, and... Uh, Native Americans and so on, we don't really, you know, come to grips with the full magnitude of that. Um, And you wrote a book uh, about lynching Mm -hmm. called On the Courthouse Lawn. First of all, explain why you chose that title. Mm -hmm. So the book is called On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century. And the reason I chose that title is because I'm a New Yorker, born and raised, and me too, my, by the way. You too? Yes. Okay. And so maybe you even share this with me. My 
understanding of lynching was that it was something that happened in the woods. Yes. Um, with kind of very rural people. And um, that is not the truth. Um, and, that, and that truth is really important. It's important that most lynchings happened um, downtown, um, very often on the courthouse lawn, uh, that the people who attended those lynchings were not people in the backwoods, but they, you know, they were law students and high school students and housekeepers and shop owners and pharmacists uh, and just average people. And that truth was important. And the, the reason I wrote the book you know, again, it kind of all comes out of the experience of engaging with communities as a civil rights lawyer was that every time I was doing a case, whether it was voting rights cases in the South um, or whether it was cases that I then took on at Maryland where I was running an environmental justice clinic um, on the eastern shore of Maryland, in all of those communities, there was this history that my clients would tell me about, some 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 history of racial violence, of some pogrom that happened in this community in decades past. And it was astonishing to me that this that wherever I went, these stories would come out. They They might have happened 50 years ago, but they were very present in the understanding of African Americans about their relationship to the white community in those towns. And, um, and that story those stories very much shaped that relationship. And part of what shaped that relationship is precisely what is indicated in the title of the book, that these events happened in the middle of town, that everybody With saw With the it. approbation, the silent approbation of everyone Sanctioned. Yeah. Sanctioned by the community, known by law enforcement, known by prosecutors, known by judges, um, with no accountability. And that it was it's important to tell that story and so this ultimately was yet another one of the stories that I wanted to be able to tell um you know in 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 my life as an academic I could tell those stories I remember I brought a voting rights case challenging the way judges are elected in Oklahoma that was the first time I learned about the Tulsa race riots so this is maybe 1991 uh this is before there was the the big legislative commission and so forth and it was almost like a kind of a story that African Americans told but it was very hard to find documentation that proved that it in fact happened you couldn't find the newspaper from that week. The Tulsa World in the in the public library was missing. Same thing I found actually on the Eastern Shore. The newspaper uh, after the lynching just for that week some, somehow was missing. Um, you know, so you couldn't really prove that it happened. Um, but it did happen. And now, of course, we know so much more. There's been so much more scholarship and films and so forth about um, the Tulsa race riots. But I included it in the complaint that I filed under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the section called History of Discrimination. But I largely... Uh, wrote those allegations on information and belief from the word of my clients mm -hmm. because it was so hard to find documentation to actually support the events that they knew happened. So there was, a, you know, I was trying to say it in, in the confines of litigation, but writing this book really freed me up to be able to tell these important important stories uh, about the history of lynching. You, you've uh, talked about... Uh, about the need for communities to come mm -hmm. to grips not not that the country as a whole obviously has its its own legacy mm -hmm. that that has to be reconciled but that you believe these the that these communities themselves where those pages are missing mm -hmm. uh need to reconcile themselves with that history yeah i think we very often talk about you know wanting to have a national conversation on race and i'm and i'm not really excited about that idea i think that um, race is a very difficult topic, very uh, intense, but um, also very local. And these local pogroms that happened in these communities, you know, very often followed by, you know, uh, looting or burning down of the black part of town, and that kind of set the relationship between blacks and whites in those towns, um, has to be explored. Because what I found when I was doing my research on cases that had nothing to do with lynching, on other civil rights cases, was that these communities were almost locked and frozen from those events into a certain kind of choreography of how they dealt with each other. And that what overlaid that whole choreography was silence, the desire not to talk about this thing that happened. So I think those communities need to really themselves grapple with their own history and confront that history and recognize that history. Um, and I also think that conversations about race, you know, are not only at the community level, they're at 
you know, they're at the level of institutions that the, you know, law enforcement community in those communities needs to talk about what their response was. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the community of prosecutors needs to talk about, um, you know, those prosecutors who had all the evidence but refused to prosecute the individuals who they knew uh, were the lynchers. Uh, The religious community, the faith community, you know, I, I looked at the sermons that were preached, you know, the Sunday after the lynching in the white churches, you know, um, they need to talk about their failure to engage in the moral issue of, you know, what what happened often the Saturday night before uh, in that town. Um, there are conversations that need to happen within families. Uh, some of these conversations are very intense and local and familial, and are, are the scale of them is not always best, you know, at the national level. And we should point out, I mean, lynching is is, is a dreadful, dreadful legacy but there are all kinds of mm-hmm. legacies and 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 they're not limited to one region of the country we sit here on the south side of Chicago mm-hmm. and Chicago has its own yes it does history that has yet to be fully mm-hmm. uh, reconciled and dealt with uh, so um, Reverend, Barbara, com- Reverend Barbara and I were just talking about you know when dr. King came to Chicago and Cicero and um you know, in, in 1966. And, and the said he of, saw crowds that were as hate-filled as any he, he had seen in the South. He didn't just see them. He felt them. I mean, yeah, he, they, they threw were through rocks and bricks. And if you've seen the footage of it, it's uh, it's it's extraordinary. You know, swastikas, you know, yeah. on sheets. Uh, uh, it was extraordinary. I don't know that there's been a local conversation uh, d- deeply about that. And when I say conversation, I don't mean, uh, you know, just a conversation that hits the surface. We may know the, the, the facts, although very often the facts are unknown. But what's the effect of that? These stories mm-hmm. get passed down, and that's what I learned doing this research on lynching. The, the, you know, the people in the black community that I spoke to, there was one man who later became an elected official in Wicomico County. He could so vividly describe the lynching of Matthew Williams that happened in 1931, he assumed that he had been there. And it was only when he got to high school he realized, gosh, I, you know, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even born, right? But it, it, the stories were so passed down in the family because members of the black community would tell their children, this is why you have to follow the rules. This is mm-hmm. why you get off the sidewalk when this person is coming. This is why you don't talk back. Those stories were told as, um, you know, they, they hit the target, right? Lynching was about social control. It was a form of racial terrorism. It was a way to control the population. And so these stories had power and resonance, but also the story about the complicity of ordinary white people mm-hmm. is also a story that gets passed down. I heard those stories. I heard those stories about who you can trust and who you can't trust. So to pretend that there's not residue of that, and in the white community, there are stories that are passed down too. Mm-hmm. And many of those stories are about closing ranks. What I found in my research was that there was... Um, a pact within the white community to not talk about the lynching of Matthew Williams and that people who tried to violate it were ostracized. I mean, I tell the story in the book of a white woman who talked about it at a historical society event with her friends and she was frozen out of that community and then finally left because she dared to surface this, this story that there was a tacit agreement we will never talk about. So all of that is the stuff that I think we haven't really explored. I would love to talk further about yeah. this, but we, we need to talk not just about the past, but where we are mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. You, you rejoined the Legal Defense Fund in 2013 mm-hmm. as, as, its, as, as its chief, mm-hmm. as its director. Um, tell me, uh, and, and it's interesting because you... You took over at a time when there was an African American, the first African American president in mm-hmm. this country, and a and a and a, uh, I think um, fair to say a a a, a different viewpoint uh, on these issues. And then you had the transition to uh, this administration. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that journey and where we are. You've seen um, uh, voting rights. Mm-hmm come under assault and, um, you know, just assess where we are today. Well, you know, on one hand, um, you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't have a greater contrast (laughs) between President Obama and President Trump without question. But, you know, what I have always said is that those of us who are civil rights lawyers, um, 
we see the flaws in our democracy maybe before others do, because we're engaged deeply with people who are living at the margin. And that's how you can tell um, and assess the strength of a democracy, is, is you assess it by seeing how is it working in the lives of people who are marginalized, people who are at the bottom. So it is important to say that much of the work I do was not created by President Trump, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, the, I just described being a voting rights lawyer, <laughs> you know, right. years ago, right? Um, I'm, I'm actually, I don't want to date myself, but I'm actually old enough to uh, have sued Democrats who were, you know, still the that final few who were governors in the South in voting rights cases. Um, the docket that, you know, we had at the Legal Defense Fund and have at the Legal Defense Fund, many of those voting rights cases predated Trump. The Supreme Court's decision right. in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, which essentially gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act required certain jurisdictions in the country, mostly in the South, to um, to submit any voting changes they wanted to make to a federal authority, either the right. Attorney General or, or a, yeah. a federal district court in the, in, in the District of Columbia, uh, before they could make them. And if they had the, if those changes were seen to have the effect of um, uh, undermining black voting strength, then they would not be allowed to move those those changes forward. Because of the legacy in those areas. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Representative Bobby Scott says, you know, they, they did it the old-fashioned way, they, they earned it, right? So they, they earned being under preclearance by that history. Uh, but Chief Justice Roberts and a majority of the Supreme Court decided in 2013 that uh, time was up and that enough was enough and that this was stigmatizing to the South. It was an astonishing decision. Uh, The Voting Rights Act had been reauthorized time and time again by a bipartisan Congress. It had last been reauthorized in 2006. The vote was 98 to 0 in the Senate, 396 to 33 in the House. That's how bipartisan the Voting Rights Act, including Section 5, was. Uh, and the you know the Congress held hearings and took in evidence and determined that it needed to be reauthorized. That voting rights and voter suppression was still a problem. Supreme Court swept that away, and what we saw after that was the unleashing of a kind of new um, engagement with with voter suppression. So this predated the Trump presidency, and it's important, David, because as I you know have been saying, I- I'm really deeply concerned with. The failure, I think, of this country to recognize the, the signs of what that meant. You know, we challenged Texas's voter ID law. Texas had the strictest voter ID law in the country. It was a, it was a voter ID law that they had tried to get pre-cleared that had been denied before Shelby. The day of the Shelby County decision, the attorney general of Texas tweeted out, his intention to resuscitate that voter ID law, and he did. And this voter ID law, you know, kept our clients who were students at Prairie View A&M from using their university ID to vote, which they had been able to use in the past. Native Americans could no longer use their tribal ID to vote. All kinds of state employee ID were no longer eligible to use, but you could use a concealed gun carry permit. Mm -hmm. So we file the case, and we win the case. The, The federal court finds that the law violated the Voting Rights Act and was passed for the purpose of discriminating against African Americans and Latinos. You know that the North Carolina voter suppression bill was struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that said that with surgical precision, the legislature tried to find those features that they thought would best disenfranchise African-American voters. To me, when I think about our conversations about white supremacy, and I think about how we all felt when we saw that march in Charlottesville, and how repugnant and how vile that was, and the failure of the the president to respond in the way we would think a president of the United States would respond. We all are joined in that. But it is equally, if not more troubling, to have whole legislatures of states meet, as they did in Texas and as they did in North Carolina, to pass laws designed to disenfranchise citizens of this country who are African-American and Latino. That is also white supremacy, and that predated Trump. And I, um, I worry that um, part of what we, we see now, which is so over the top, um, uh, may steer us away from understanding that Trump was only possible because of the problem that lay underneath the surface. The truth is, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, people would have believed we were on a steady march to progress and would not have accepted that just an inch below the surface was precisely what we see now. And those of us who are civil rights lawyers who are out in the country litigating these cases, we do see it. And um, so in a way, as difficult as this is, it has surfaced something that we knew was underneath the surface. For sure. But let me ask you this. Um, Hillary Clinton wasn't elected. Donald Trump was elected. He is now uh, 
appointing federal judges. What are the implications of those judicial nominations on issues like voting rights? Well, before we even get to the judicial nominations, let's talk about what it means to appoint an attorney general. The attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. The day of the Shelby County decision, you know, civil rights advocates marched immediately over the Department of Justice, and we sat down with Eric Holder, the then attorney general, in which he pledged to um, commit the resources of the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division to ensuring that we protected the voting rights of African Americans. And we worked shoulder to shoulder. In fact, uh, we worked shoulder to shoulder on that Texas voter ID case. Um, What it means to have a Department of Justice that understands the need for criminal justice reform that has this disproportionate effect on African American communities. And so Eric Holder's Smart on Crime initiative so that U.S. attorneys were not overcharging. What it meant to have a department that understands the ways in which African-American students are disparately punished in schools that leads to the school-to-prison pipeline and creating guidance to address that, or guidance to address uh, the misuse of criminal backgrounds checks by employers. All of these things are initiatives that came about in the Obama administration in which we were able to work shoulder-to-shoulder with the Attorney General's office to move forward civil rights initiatives that are powerful and important. And the nomination and confirmation of Jeff Sessions ended all of that. He has reversed everything. If you just look at the policing context, this country was riveted by videos of police officers killing unarmed African-Americans. Eric Garner, Walter Scott in South Carolina, all of these images that we've seen. And the role that the Obama administration took was to create this uh, commission to study 21st century policing. Uh, People can remember uh, Eric Holder going to to Ferguson. People can remember um, uh, 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 the attorney general going to Baltimore. These were moments when it required leadership and when it required an opportunity to really talk about an issue that has lived in the African-American community for decades. Uh, And it also required the resources of the department to come in and investigate unconstitutional policing, as they did in Ferguson, as they did in Baltimore, which resulted in the consent decrees that we hope will have a transformational effect. Um, Jeff Sessions reversed all of that. Uh, He's made clear he will not investigate police departments for patterns and practices of discrimination. Uh, And so, of course, this is a question that we should have for the new attorney general. But then when we get to- I saw your tweets, by the way, yesterday during the Mm -hmm. hearings for Mr. Barr, Mm -hmm. the nominee, Mm -hmm. and uh, you were- you. You clearly don't think that he is going to change that trajectory. Well, and in fact, uh, the the nominee has a very uh, strong history of uh, believing in um, the incarceration as you know the the linchpin of how you control crime. He he wrote <laughs> he wrote an article called "The Case for More Incarceration." I can't imagine anything that is more contrary to the conversations that have been happening in this country around the effects of mass incarceration on the African-American community. Um, I would like to see, uh, you know, he did appear before the committee yesterday. I would have liked to see more detailed questions about the issue of unconstitutional policing. And, uh, you know, this the, there's a statute, the Law Enforcement Misconduct Statute, that empowers only the attorney general to engage in these pattern and practice investigations. And uh, that had, was abandoned by Jeff Sessions. And uh, I think that's an important question for uh, Attorney General Barr. It's quite serious. He uh, articulated a view of the Voting Rights Act yesterday in which he said he thought that the, you know voting rights needed to be protected. Um, that right now the Department of Justice is engaged in no real voting rights litigation. So uh, we, we have real questions about that. Um, you know, but to your point about the judges, that's well, the before name you, we've, yeah, before yeah, sure. we leave him, I mean, one of the things uh, that he said was overall he stands by the idea that the criminal justice system treats black and white people similarly. Listen, if that's if that in 2019 can be your belief um, and you are uh, a nominee to head up the most important law enforcement uh, system in maybe the world and you're not able to see this is not. Sherilyn Eiffel's view and opinion. It is the empirical data about what happens in our criminal justice system that controls, you know, for uh, similar similar records, similar crime, and so forth. All of the evidence is there if you wish to see the ways in which African Americans are treated differently in the criminal justice system. And to have Mr. Barr in 2019 say that, um, you call it disqualifying. For me, it's it's a it's a red line. You've you've got to be able to at least admit 
that that reality exists. What you think should be done about it, we may disagree on what the prescriptions are for that. But to simply deny the reality of the problem, in his colloquy with uh, Senator Booker, you know, he indicated there were things he hadn't seen and that he wanted to look at. I, I think this is a really critically important problem that you should have been reading about. You should know about this. And so um, to, to not be fully conversant in, uh, in the scholarship, in the studies, uh, in the reality and in the effects of that uh, is, is quite astonishing to me. We just, there was just a First Step Act, just a criminal justice reform bill that was passed. And part of it was, uh, you know, applying retroactivity to the Fair Sentencing Act, which was designed to address the crack cocaine disparity, mm-hmm. which nobody thinks was based on anything other than race. It certainly was not pharmacologically based. The difference between based. how uh, powdered the, cocaine the, and crack that's cocaine right. the, were the harsher penalties, 100 to 1 originally until the Fair Sentencing Act brought it down to 18 to 1. It should be 1 to 1, but it wasn't. Um, so uh, to me, I find this astonishing that this statement can be made uh, in 2019 uh, without um, you know, s- some real deep and sophisticated engagement with the work that has been done over the last two decades in particular to demonstrate empirically uh, the the disparate treatment of African Americans in the criminal justice system. So on on the judiciary, you were uh, outspoken on the appointment of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm. um, and you can speak to why, but there are judges being appointed on a regular basis all over the country. What is the cumulative effect of of those appointments? Well, um, we will see. you know, the the federal judiciary is, you know, critically important. If we think about our history and we think about um, the transformations in this country that uh, almost everyone, you know, will say are transformations that brought us closer to being a place of justice and democracy. If we think about Brown versus Board of Education, in which the United States Supreme Court essentially said that racial apartheid is unconstitutional <laughs> in the United States. Um, and so we should not forget that this is the 65th anniversary of Brown. Um, you know, this was not a, a ballot initiative. <laughs> uh, it was not by presidential decree. It was the United States Supreme Court recognizing that the words of the 14th Amendment um, that uh, require equal protection of the laws mean what they say. And, well, the uh, Supreme Court also uh, promulgated Plessy versus Ferguson. Absolutely. So the court can... The court, the court giveth and the court taketh away. Right. But I guess my, my initial point is I'm talking now about the power. Right. Mm-hmm. What the, the power of courts to transform the course of our democracy cannot be uh, underestimated. And so we take very seriously appointments to the federal bench. And I recognize that, uh, you know, the bench is not going to be filled with uh, judges who who share my views. Right. About about the law, um, even even when there are even when there are presidents whose views are closer to, to my own. Uh, that's not really the issue. The question is whether or not litigants feel they can get a fair hearing before a judge, whether they believe they have a chance. I always say about, you know, LDF lawyers and our work, um, you know, we, we, we very often appear before conservative courts. You know, we, we you know, the, the Texas voter ID case, we took to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most conservative in the, in the country, and we still prevailed. Um, I believe that if we have the opportunity to litigate in front of a competent judge, that is prepared to do their job. I like our chances. Um, I, you know, I think we work incredibly hard. We know how to put on a case. We know how to make a record. Uh, what I have seen with some of the Trump nominees is deeply troubling. It's not just the ideology. It's not that just that he has appointed judges who feel themselves unable to say that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. Brown versus Board of Education is not just another decision. It is actually part of the legal canon. It actually means, in my view, that you have. Uh, doubts about the rule of law. The rule of law is uh, non-discrimination. And so um, the inability to say that and to say that with clarity and to say, you know, I'm a judge and I can't comment on cases. You can't comment on cases that you think might come back before you. Do do you think Brown versus Board of Education is going to come back before you? So I take issue with those judicial nominees who found that they couldn't say that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided and who now sit on the bench. Um, But I'm also seeing something that is that should trouble everyone. And that is you know, a, a level of incompetence. Um, you know, many of us saw the video of a judicial nominee who, uh, you know, sat before the committee and couldn't answer very basic questions, you know, what's a motion in limine and so forth. And it was clear that this was not someone who should be a judge who had very limited, if any, litigation experience. First of all, we should be asking ourselves how he got to a confirmation hearing. 
He didn't get past the confirmation hearing. You know, David, there's a, there's a question there. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not questioning your <laughs> yeah, premise, he but, didn't. but it just needs to well, be pointed and, out. And what was great about it was that the person who was asking those questions was a Republican senator, right? right? Was, was, Senator, was senator Kennedy. Kennedy. And right. so I really appreciated him for that. And I've actually sat in the room and heard Senator Kennedy ask very rigorous questions of nominees about practice, about about just, you know, how you, how you litigate cases, which I think is really important. important. So when I see these competence issues, it worries me. Um, when I see nominees who don't have the requisite experience um, to sit on the bench, and yet they're being passed through, there are several nominees who've been rated unqualified by the American Bar Association who have been confirmed. Yeah, which which was really a disqualifying factor in the past. Yeah, and and that should be that is that partisan competence. Um, so this is deeply worrying to me because for me, you know, particularly when you think about the trial courts. Um, you know, I, I like to have a, a sharp judge who knows who knows how to conduct a trial, who knows what evidence should be admitted, who knows whether an objection should be sustained or overruled, right? Who understands how to manage uh, discovery. You know, that that's what we want because we want the, the fair opportunity to litigate our case and to be able to make our record. We're not asking for a thumb on the scale. But when you have judges who haven't themselves actively litigated and don't know, we have to really worry. Uh, about whether those judges will be more inclined to dismiss cases on a motion to dismiss or on summary judgment, whether they will make correct rulings. And it's very difficult to overturn the decisions of trial court judges. So, um, you know, we're concerned at the competence level also. And I really believe that the Senate Judiciary Committee has to do better at this, has to take seriously uh, the, 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 the sacred trust of, um, you know, uh, confirming justices and judges for our, for our federal courts. Judges should not sit on our federal courts who are not competent. And if we can't even agree on that, something is very, very wrong. We, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, we, 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 we get together here on uh, the week of the anniversary of Dr. King's uh, birth. Um, you talked about feeling like maybe you were born a little too late, that mm-hmm. you should have been part of that struggle, but you are in a relay race, mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. a historic re- relay race, and you are now carrying uh, that torch. Where, where are we, uh, fi- you know, 50 years later mm-hmm. uh, as a country? And um, are, what, 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 are, what are your concerns and, and what, are your, what, are your, what gives you hope? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, so to to the first thing you said, uh, that's part of what gives me hope, the fact that there is a relay race. Relay races are always going forward, and you are passing that baton and you're running your stretch. You don't have to run the whole thing. You do have to run as fast as you can, and you do have to have some level of coordination with the person behind you and the person ahead of you to be able to receive the baton and to be able to give the baton, not drop it. But, but give it. Um, and so I'm running my race as fast as I can. And uh, what gives me hope is um, one of the great things. I, so I taught for 20 years at University of Maryland Law School. And uh, there came a point where uh, I started to encounter my students <laughs> in my work. And there was nothing more exciting. I, yeah. I regarded myself as creating the next generation of civil rights lawyers. And many of them are civil rights lawyers. Um, and that feeling that there is another generation that uh, is doing extraordinary work. At the Legal Defense Fund, most of our attorneys are younger, uh, uh, young, really. Many of them are women. Many of them have young children, by the way, Mm -hmm. and one of the great joys for me has been to create an environment and a conversation about how you have a family and do this work that I would have enjoyed very much as a young lawyer, Um, and so um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, and seeing them, seeing their dedication, seeing their hard work, seeing how smart they are. I mean, you know, you just know that there are people ready to do this work and who are thinking in different ways. Every generation is more unshackled by some of the restrictions of the generation before them. How you talk about issues, your willingness to confront issues, the creativity of your thinking and so forth. So to, to see kind of unfettered young civil rights lawyers is really astonishing and and wonderful for me, but also to see that we're in a movement time and to see this time of young activists really beginning with Ferguson, um, you know, and continuing through Parkland. And um, this is a time in which young people are um, very conscious 
in which they are willing to put themselves on the line, in which they're willing to make sacrifices, very much like young people in the civil rights movement. Um, and when uh, I was saying this last night with Reverend Barbara, we're in one of those moments where the pressure of the moment, particularly with the Trump presidency, particularly with the rise of explicit and open white supremacy, has created such a pressure that we're all almost coming together and rising to do our best work. The litigators, the political scene where we're seeing young politicians come out and be exciting and want to challenge the orthodoxy. And we're seeing young activists who are coming out and marching, who are making their demand, who are educating themselves, who are creating their own organizations. And all of those things are coming together in a way that is super powerful. And I, you know, we talk all the time about how difficult this moment seems, but like that's when transformation happens. Right. That you know, what do people think the civil rights movement was? Fun and games. <laughs> it was a time of tremendous mm-hmm. challenge, of physical peril. Um, it was an awful time in many ways. Many lives lost, uh, and those of us who reaped the 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 rewards of the of the sacrifice of those martyrs and of the people who came together to make that moment happen, should recognize that it's just our turn to be under pressure and to have to make transformation happen. So as exhausting as it is, because every day you just don't even know what the Trump administration is going to do. Um, you know, I, I, I was saying last night, you know, the Legal Defense Fund since 2016, we've sued six cabinet members. That's not usually what we do. I mean, we're, you know, we're suing governors and local officials. It's voting rights cases. We have criminal justice. We do criminal defense work, capital punishment. We do, you know, uh, uh, economic justice work, housing discrimination and so forth. This is astonishing that we have to take our resources to do this. It's a tremendous amount of pressure. But together with this other, the other elements of what I think of as the justice ecosystem, you know, organizing and movements, and political power. It's all happening at the same time. And I'm uh, just hopeful enough to believe that what's going to be on the other side of this is going to be transformational. It's going to allow us to go back and address maybe some of the things that we compromised on or that we didn't push hard enough on or that we didn't fully address. And that's what has to happen. The circle has to loop back and then you go back and you pick up some of the things that you maybe put down and you press even harder on them. Uh, and so that's the moment that we're in. We, we, can, we can recognize it's terrible. It is a terrible thing to see families separated at the border. It's a terrible thing to hear the ugly rhetoric from this president. It is a terrible thing that federal government workers are out of work and not getting pay. And there's um, you know, very little compassion about this. It is terrible to see the ways in which the rollback on civil rights has happened in almost every area in housing and education. It's a terrible thing. But it's also true that that pressure is compelling us to push in ways um, that that we that we haven't in some time. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, there is almost a freeing as well because the the other side has made their intentions so explicit. Maybe maybe in ways that uh, previous previous iterations would have been too polite to do. That it allows us also to be honest about what we want. You do get the sense that. Uh, People have shaken off their lethargy and are exercising Absolutely. muscles in our democratic system Absolutely. that they haven't used in a long Highest time. Highest turnout for any midterm, you know, in 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 in, in memory. You know, it's it's people coming out. I always say that there are elections happening all the time, and that's always my exhortation. And I won't get off this podcast until I say that. You know, every year there are elections. There are not elections every two years. There are not elections every four years. There are elections every year. This year, wherever you are. There's an election for a railroad commissioner, county yeah. commission, school we board. Have, uh, we have elections for mayor You've got a in mayoral Chicago election. coming up. But, you know, people will come out for the mayoral election. Yeah. And I know they will. I know but they'll But, no, I that. agree with you completely. Right? All of these Everyone. offices have an impact on people's lives. Yes. And you need to take an interest in them. Let me just say, uh, as we close, that, um, and I hope this comes out the right way, because I can't speak for Dr. King, mm. but I have to believe that he would be thrilled to know that you were carrying the torch as you have. And anybody who's listened to this podcast would, I think, agree with me. So, Sherilyn Eiffel, thanks so much for everything you do and for being with us today. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, 
visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.